0: we have MyQA ion and ion rt from iba for automated patient specific qa for photon electron and proton radiotherapy and we also have mr box from our ai suppliers at therapanacea allowing ai powered mr only workflows for a more consistent and high quality planning pathway for sgrt
1: Hi, everyone. Before we get going with this podcast, we'd really like to highlight an important annual flash survey from Radiotherapy UK charity that will open from 29th August till 12th September 2023. This is your opportunity as a member of the radiotherapy workforce to share your experiences of what is happening on the ground. So last year, over 10% of the entire radiotherapy workforce responded from all disciplines and the key findings received national coverage from BBC Newsnight, national papers and in Parliament.
2: A few of their key findings from last year included 84% of respondents said that they do not have the workforce in place to meet current patient need. Eight in ten respondents felt that the current environment had caused them or a colleague to consider leaving. Over one third said that they didn't have the appropriate IT and technology infrastructure to support the delivery of the most up-to-date techniques. So, please do take part, have your say, have your voice heard, and help raise awareness of the crucial need to invest and improve radiotherapy services in the UK. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 103. My name is Jay McNamara, and I'm joined by fellow host and I'm a Joel Canderson. Hi, everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Dr Anisha Patel, who discussed her career as a GP, her experience of cancer and her amazing advocacy work, including appearing on ITV uh, this morning. So if you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest, Sam Worcester, who will be discussing his role as a training consultant therapeutic radiographer in brachytherapy. So hi, Sam. Welcome.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So Sam, you did disclose that you've not told many people that you're coming on Rad Chat. So... <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit,
3: like I said, the imposter syndrome, you think, oh no, but I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be fine.
2: You'll be, you'll be hiding all social media and things from friends and family going, no, I don't want anyone to yeah. hear me. Yeah,
3: I'm, I'm sure the messages will get through. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure they'll find out.
2: So Sam, do you want to just tell us a little bit about kind of your career pathway and what it is that you currently do?
3: Sure. So currently, like you've mentioned, I am a trainee consultant therapy radiographer uh, with the base in brachytherapy. Um, so I went to university, I went to Sheffield Hallam University, and Joe was one of my lecturers. Um,
1: of, of course, she was. Pretty much everyone <laughs> who's come on this podcast has been taught by Joe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not strictly true, but 32% of the workforce come through Sheffield Hallam, so we've yeah. got no choice. <laughs>
1: Um,
3: so went in 2008, graduated in 2011 and qualified as a band 5 therapy radiographer and worked at the Leicester Royal Infirmary for about 18 months and then I progressed up to a band 6 role but in a different site at the St James's Institute of Oncology in Leeds and I worked there for about just over a year, just maybe just under 16 months and then I followed my now wife to Norfolk as a senior rad and worked as a senior rad for a couple of years and then thought, what's happening now? Looked at a few superintendent roles, um, but advanced practice seemed to be a good way to progress. Um, And I was lucky enough at that time that our hospital was refurbing our brachytherapy suite. So they basically knocked it all down, moved the superficial uh, x-ray machine out and it became a brachytherapy suite kitted out to be able to perform general anaesthetics, so our own mini operating theatre. So it was all flashy, um, and then the Norfolk and Norwich were also lucky enough for the first team in the world to get the new Varian brachytherapy treatment machine, the BRAVOS, so we were kind of their test site for that. So at that point, I applied for the advanced practitioner in prostate brachytherapy, as the Norfolk and Norwich was setting that up as a brand new service. We were already treating guinea patients and had been for some time, um, but they raised lots of money through a charitable appeal for this whole refurb um, and for my position as well. So I was very lucky to get into into that. So I had about a year's worth of writing protocols, visiting theatres, visiting different sites to see how prostate brachy worked as it was a new thing for, for all of us involved. Um, and that was amazing. Um, moving from a treatment Therapy radiographer, where you're kind of based clinically every day, seeing patients non-stop, to then move to a, for a year was basically a desk job. It was a big shift in 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 practice, and whilst exciting, it was a, a new skill about learning how to manage your time, about what's what's the priority. It's not just getting all of your patients in and treated safely, and you know giving them the best care that you can. You're you know writing protocols that are going to affect things years down the line. So it was a really insightful position to be in. Um, and then I was in that post for uh, five about five years and then a consultant for post opened up. So I applied, we uh, applied a couple of times. Moving to consultant post, there's a lot of different expectations on you uh, as a radiographer you're expected to reach much further than just your department or another radiotherapy department there's an expectation on you to influence practice across your region nationally present research kind of do more research working towards phd's it's an it's an intense program so it took us a few times to get there just to kind of demonstrate that we're on the right path to consultancy so I got given a trainee consultant radiographer role, which is where I am now. And once I've finished my MSc, I will move into a full consultant radiographer role. That's my kind of jump step up. Um, but it's it, it's a huge job. All consultant posts, I think everyone thinks that is where you want to go and is it's amazing. But you really have to think about how much work it is and how much work it is outside of radiotherapy, uh, which is great but it's a steep learning curve Um, but it does mean in that role you are able to affect practice you can see what needs improving see what needs changing you can do patient satisfaction surveys and actually make a change for what's best for your patients what's best for your service managing staff making sure that brachytherapy is is an attractive place to come and work a lot of staff maybe don't get trained in it in their placements and they may start as a band five and think, oh, I don't really know anything about it. So it's, you know, making sure everyone in the department knows that it's a good and progressive place to work. Uh, it was making it attractive to everyone. It certainly caught me as soon as I went in, I was like, this is this is it. This is, I think, w- why I'm in the, in my role, like why I did therapy over diagnostic. It really was really was really good, really rewarding. Um, so I'm hoping to finish my masters at, in the next 18 months or so. And then after that, look to start a PhD, which is a a big, uh, a big undertaking. Um, I'm trying not to think about it too much at the moment. Um, But yeah, so that should, you know, take me the next five years or so. So kind of locked in for a while.
2: Sam, you would never have said that when you were my student. If I said you would ever... (laughs) have gone on to do a phd you would have been like eye rolled at me going no joe
3: yeah <laughs> like imagine if, if you'd have heard someone go sam's
1: doing a PhD. <laughs> no.
2: but it but it just shows doesn't it that your kind of passion for your practice has then inspired you to go on to kind of do more academic work so that you know sometimes i think there are true academics out there who do the academic pathway and follow that so that they can then do the clinical practice whereas actually I think that there is something that shows the passion and motivation behind wanting to improve your own clinical knowledge for the health of your patients and and the experience that they're going to get as a result of you having more knowledge and expertise.
3: Absolutely I think having that knowledge and expertise allows you to pinpoint maybe not shortcomings, but maybe areas for improvement within your service or, you know, having that clinical time with patients and all patients are saying, you know, we don't enjoy this bit or we felt that, you know, our holistic needs weren't met at this point. It allows you then to think, well, actually, I could do something on this. And uh, there's a colleague who works in Bristol uh, who's a consultant radiographer in brachytherapy as well, and they've done their PhD on patient experience in brachytherapy. And it's an amazing piece of work. Um, and she spent such a long time doing it. Um, I'm not going to mention a name, but I'm sure everyone within the brachytherapy world will know who I'm talking about. Um, but it's amazing that someone's gone into kind of that level of depth about the patient experience, about how it can be improved, and because uh, it's a key point with brachytherapy. Um, it's a very kind of intense treatment, as all treatments are, um, but the internal nature of it is very kind of. Uh, can be a sensitive time for patients and being able to support them properly is absolutely key.
2: Now I know Numan is laughing at the fact that I didn't pull you up on the fact that you called us therapy radiographers rather than therapeutic radiographers, which Sam, if you don't know, I am renowned for correcting, but I do appreciate thanks for letting everyone know how long I've been academia by saying (laughs) when you qualified, but um, (laughs) yeah, that kind of shows the times. So what we need to make sure is Norfolk and Norwich, change their therapy radiographers to their therapeutic radiographers. I, I think they are therapeutic radiographers. I think <laughs> it's probably, probably me as
1: well. Uh, no, we definitely are therapeutic
3: radiographers.
1: Um, yeah. Sam, you talked about kind of national or international kind of work with what you're doing. So the Royal College of Radiologists have said, I think by 20, 2030, I think the start is that there'll be 20% less Clinical oncologists. So obviously, your role is a perfect example of where we can take some of that pressure away, make sure the patient pathway works. But might be a controversial question. You don't have to answer. But doctors get to do two sites. So consultant clinicians do two sites, and that's how they can implement change worldwide, nationally, etc. But in two fields, do you think that radiographers and physios and other AHPs or even nurses might move towards something like that as there's more pressure on kind of this role?
3: Yes, potentially. I think it depends what level of practice you are looking at. So within my trainee consultant role, I am responsible for all brachytherapy, but my background, my basis is from prostate. So I do mainly look after the prostate service and I have an excellent advanced practitioner who works with me and she does a lot of, if not all of the gynae work. So I think at a certain level, I think once you're established as a consultant practitioner and you have established your scopes of practice, what level you're working at and what you are allowed to do, I think if that fits within your job plan of your clinical allocated time, then there's no reason why you couldn't stretch to two body sites. But again, I think it's very dependent on how big those body sites are. If I went from, I as for example, I would never do prostate and then head and neck because they're completely two separate remits. Whereas within brachytherapy, doing prostate and gynecological work, there is an overlap and a tie-in. And that seems a sensible area where you could take on two sets of practice. I think with brachytherapy, due to the internal nature and how treatment is delivered, there's an extra barrier in that around the medical training of how you insert the applicators and the theatre procedure that you're involved in. So I think there will always be some limit there of how much you can actually do. Saying that, our prostate service is mainly radiographer led. So we are responsible for all of the patient setup, uh, the ultrasound, which we've learned through different training courses and speaking to sonographers, um, which is a skill, you know, I never thought I'd have coming out of out of university. All of our theatre staff who work within their, in there are scrub trained. So they've spent time in main theatres expanding their practice and can work in a sterile environment, handing equipment to, to the oncologist in a sterile manner. And again, that's something as radiographers, I don't think a lot of us would ever think, think that we're doing. I am now doing contouring within theatre on ultrasound guided prostate brachytherapy. And again, that's part of kind of a training programme with set competencies. So it's all about working within your scope of practice and what your consultant will support you to do. And for me, the end goal is to be able to actually insert some some needles myself. Um, so really taking on the role of the oncologist of the oncologist in that whole process. So it is possible, um, but I think you have to be very careful about what you're taking on and kind of is it relevant to what to what you're doing.
1: So Sam, what is brachotherapy?
3: So. Brachytherapy is a type of internal radiotherapy so what usually happens is a small radioactive source is is placed inside of your body to deliver the treatment and it's usually inside or close to where the cancer is and this can be before surgery or after surgery and there's different types of radioactive sources that we use. Um, Some sources are seeds that are implanted and some are sources that are welded onto the end of a wire that are temporarily placed inside you and then removed at the end of treatment. So for the seeds, you usually remain radioactive for a short time afterwards, but if it is temporary brachytherapy or known as high dose rate brachytherapy, uh, you are not radioactive afterwards um, and the treatment is usually delivered a lot quicker than a low um, low dose rate brachytherapy um, and the principle of it is that you're treating from the inside out. So you're delivering that really high dose directly to where the cancer is, rather than with external beam radiotherapy, where you have the mechanically generated radiation treating from outside in, you have to go through a lot more healthy tissue to get there. But because we're treating from inside out, often the treatments are quite invasive. So it usually involves an applicator of some sorts being inserted, whether that being as an outpatient, or under a general anaesthetic to be able to then place the radioactive source close to, to the cancer.
2: So Sam, if we kind of maybe split maybe gynaecological and prostate brachytherapy, um, what are the differences between the two that you would, you would talk to patients about specifically in terms of the actual procedure that they'd go through?
3: Sure, so for prostate brachytherapy, depending on how you are stage grade, what your diagnosis is at the time, and um, if it's very low to intermediate risk, you may be able to have low dose rate brachytherapy. And that's usually delivered as a, a single treatment or combined with radiotherapy. And the patients would have a general anaesthetic to have these seeds inserted and they would remain radioactive for a short period of time. So there's a lot of counselling that goes around the patient about that. About preparation for theatres, what happens afterwards, and the side effects, and what they can and can't do with those gold, gold gold, radioactive seeds inside of them. You're also able to have high dose rate brachytherapy for prostate cancer, uh, and that is usually delivered as a combination therapy with brachytherapy and external beam radiotherapy. And they can be done e- e- either way around, it usually depends on, on the department's preference. So they're both very invasive, they're both. Um, requires a lot of patient engagement because not only is the patient being seen by the oncologist and then maybe the radiographer they also have to have an anaesthetic assessment so they're traipsing across the hospital to many different sites being given lots of different information so we do take our time with our patients we have lots of extra telephone appointments to prep them specifically about the brachytherapy not touching the radiotherapy just to focus them on, on, on that because Prostate cancer patients as well get given usually hormone therapy, and that hormone therapy can have a real effect on their whole their whole holistic nature. Uh, It affects the whole body from you know weight gain, hair loss, can make them feel very muddled, very kind of emotional mood swings. So being told you're going through all of this, you know, general general anesthetic, maybe an overnight stay, can be a lot for them to take in as well. And then for the gynecological, you, again, depends on your diagnosis. If you're treating a cervical cancer, you're most likely to have some radiotherapy and chemotherapy followed by brachytherapy at the end. And again, this would be done as a general anesthetic setting and the patients would have applicators and needles inserted under an anesthetic. And then they would then be woken up with those applicators inside. So very invasive. Um, the, the, dig, the dignity aspect of uh, a cervical treatment is, is huge. These patients are lying on their back, unable to sit up, uh, not really being able to move that much with the applicator inside lying there waiting for treatment. So developing a good patient rapport and being open and honest before those sorts of treatment is key. You don't want there to be any surprises on the day or any surprises throughout that pathway. And you want to make sure that they, they know all of that but also, that the patient's made you aware of what's important to them at that time. Not necessarily what they want in five years' time, but what matters to them that week. Because that week is going to be such an intense week. And even if it's just that, you know, they would like an ice lolly every day at lunchtime because they get too warm on the ward because the wards are warm, can make that huge difference. And it's such a small thing. Um, so, that honesty goes two ways between kind of patient and practitioner. Um, so we do see them, and my colleague, who looks after lots of our our gyne ladies, uh, meets them all the way through their treatment. So there is that there is that rapport, and they're not seeing someone new on their first first kind of first day of brachytherapy where they're having a general anaesthetic and they wake up they feel awful. To have that familiar face I think is uh, is is vital, and then also for the follow-ups that you know they can contact us at any point and they know that they'll get through to my colleague or me and it's a familiar name, a f- familiar voice over the phone as well.
2: I was just going to say, having been in theatre and observed um I can definitely testify that just in terms of how invasive it is, even for a therapeutic radiographer, sometimes it's a shock when you first ever see it. And it's not necessarily the placing of the rods or um, the wires, but sometimes it's about the packing. So exactly the same with external beam radiotherapy. It's true, isn't it? That obviously accuracy, reproducibility is really important. We want to just target the area that we're wanting to treat and yeah. not overexpose normal tissue. So, the vagina is packed with, with, um, with gauze, isn't it? Essentially, yeah. to make sure that, that that they don't move. That
3: nothing moves. Yeah. So we 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 don't want anything to move at that point, and it it is the surgical environment for a therapeutic radiographer. I got it this time. Uh, (laughs) um, is again something that's quite a a different learning experience. You may go to theatre once or twice as a student if maybe you're seeing something different on a different placement, if you're doing a diagnostic placement, but I think as an actual qualified therapeutic radiographer to be working in a theatre is a very different environment to working on a radiotherapy linear accelerator, very different. You are in a very small room with a lot of people in a very high-pressure situation, and like you say, not just inserting the rods; it's then packing the patients so the rods don't move. That there's no kind of lateral movement, there's no kind of in-out movement as well is re- really really important, and that's where some of kind of the advances in imaging within radiotherapy are key as well. So, for our our gynae ladies, they have CT and MR planning for their their treatments, and we're looking at introducing ultrasound guided insertions as well. So even in theatre, we'd be using ultrasound to ensure the placements of our our rods and needles are, are, are precise. And for the prostates, we plan everything under ultrasound, so the patient stays asleep the whole time, they're not having to be woken up with any applicators in situ, and I think that speaks testament to the development of imaging quality, that we can do it all under ultrasound now. And the imaging quality is is of a level that you wouldn't quite have expected. You kind of think, oh, I'm not really going to see anything on that. It's going to be a bit grainy. Am I going to be squinting? But the the quality now is, is crystal clear, which is which is
1: amazing. I think that's probably reassuring for any patients listening, because as you said, it's a very sensitive area for any kind of anatomy that's there. I remember I went for a colonoscopy a few, five years ago or something, and the scrub nurse, I basically put the gown the wrong way around and he just shouted and said he'd done it wrong. But it's that sensitivity in that situation when you feel helpless, you don't know what's going on, and actually it's just nice to have that kind of rapport, I don't know, rapport building that we get. How long do each treatments take? Because so you said if they're under the GA um, and things like that.
3: Yeah, so for our gynecological general anaesthetic cases, the actual insertion can take anywhere from half an hour to an hour and a half depending on how how easy the insertion is. Um, patient's anatomy all, all, all varies. So depending on kind of the the response to treatment, whether the disease has shrunk, um, can make a big difference as well. If patients have pre-existing things like fibroids, it can make the the very hard to get in. And then the treatments themselves for the gynaecological patients it range from anywhere from kind of five to 15 minutes that they'll be on their own in a the theatre suite for um, with with the treatment machine connected. But for an outpatient, gynaecological patient, someone having the endometrium treated maybe, which is done as an outpatient and they have an applicator inserted, um, those treatments, again, five five to 15 minutes. But again, it's, it's that dignity factor that these ladies are lying there either with their legs in stirrups or the legs to the side, um, feeling that they're very, very exposed, so it's, it's making sure that they feel comfortable, that they know that they can stop at any and um, that they're happy with, you know, the explanations that have been given, it, it, it's huge, I, I just can't reiterate it enough, that the considerations that, we, do, that we, we want patients to know that we're taking to try and make sure it's the best for them, and I think that's where the honesty goes both ways we want the patients to tell us what's important to them and we will ask them but sometimes we may not ask in quite the right way but we want to know how best we can get you through that to make sure it's the the the, the kind of the best quality treatment experience that they can have. And then for the prostate patients, because you're delivering the whole treatment whilst they're asleep, it can be anywhere from an hour and a half to for today example it, it took four hours for one of them. And that wasn't with anything going wrong. That was just things take longer in theatre. You're waiting for anaesthetists. They take longer doing their, their kind of their spiel with the patients about what's going to happen with the anaesthetic. Uh, Setups takes longer. Patients maybe haven't followed bowel prep quite correctly. So, you know, your ultrasound imaging is highly affected by that. Um, so v- very variable. But I think with the amount of Preparation that we give patients, it gives them that expectation that actually they could wake up four hours later and that's nothing to be concerned about. That is just sometimes things take longer than expected.
2: So, Sam, in terms of kind of prehabilitation, because you've talked about kind of preparing your patients, mm. um, who does that? Where does that kind of sit and what information is the patient given um, ahead of treatment?
3: So, from our department point of view, all the information will be given a new patient clinic by the consultants. They will discuss the treatment options available and they will be given the relevant literature to read about it. But as you can imagine, they probably already had, you know, four, five booklets of things, multiple pages long. So whether they've actually taken it in, um, I think I'd be the same if I was given that much, I probably wouldn't read it. Um, So I think then, once they're then referred I think making that initial contact either from the gynecological side when they start radiotherapy and seeing them whilst they're on treatment and taking kind of times out and having extra re- review appointments to see how they're getting on, whether they're, there, they're at a stage that they want to talk about it, how much they want to know, do they want to be drip fed the information or do they just want it all in one go? Because it can be quite a shock kind of learning about potentially how people describe it, how brutal they think it might be. For our our prostate chaps, that prehabilitation starts about a month before they come to our department, so that's letting them know that they're going to be contacted by a preoperative assessment nurse in anaesthetics, that they're going to be receiving lots of appointments in the post that they may receive medication and then having dedicated prep appointments where we can do it over the phone if they've got a long way to come in or they can come in face to face and we can go through each medication, what it's for, the timings of the day, what's expected of them, the preparation that they have to do. And that is all in kind of clear, easy read, patient information that's been approved by patients that it's you know clear and simple to follow. But I think a key point at that is making sure they have access to you as their, key person in in their treatment pathway, you need to be accessible to them. So making sure they have your contact details. So they they don't get that fear when they go, I don't know what to do, but I don't know who to call. It's making sure that they know they can ring you at any point, even if it's not about the brachytherapy, if they're having any issues with any aspect of their pathway, that they can just call. And we're always happy to help. And I think giving people that reassurance is huge. A lot of the prostate chaps, you know, sometimes have been reliant on their other halves for a long time to kind of help them with all this information. And if their other halves aren't available or they come on their own, that there's no kind of embarrassment to say, oh, you know, I'll just call Sam again. That's fine. We have some chaps who ring every week and that's great. And you develop such a good rapport with them. Like some chaps are still ringing us two years later just to like let us know how things are going. And it's lovely to hear from them and that they still remember you and they're so grateful for what you've done. So I think, for any staff wondering about that patient contact it, it's vital like you you can't do it without
1: having that sam you mentioned the the term brutal that's something that we say quite a lot how do we change the narrative and make it more of a positive experience i know it's obviously difficult because you're inserting things inside people i know that but yeah. just thinking with the terminology that we use
3: it's a, it's a really difficult one i think it's it's patient specific I'm not sure you're going to fix it with a blanket patient information or a description. I think that information has to be tailored from patient to patient about what they are going to respond to, what they would like to hear in terms of, like I mentioned before, do they want it all in just one session? They want to hear everything and then they can go away and deal with it. Or would they like to discuss it in stages of what's going to happen this week, what's going to happen next week? Because they may be setting themselves goals of kind of, you know, I'm gonna do this in five days, in two weeks I'd like to be doing this. So that goalpost jumps, which I think needs to be considered that you can't just give the patient all of that information and go, this covers you for the next three months, take it all in, it it doesn't work. So I think trying to remove that brutal stigma is all about taking your time with it, not giving it as a shock factor. Which sometimes patients come out of their new patient consultation and are like gobsmacked about what's going to happen. Having that key person to explain it calmly, gently, bit by bit. People sometimes use diagrams, and again, that can be can be good in some respects, but it can also terrify people. Absolutely terrify people. I think showing people around the brachytherapy area, so it's not an un, an unknown is a big thing as well because they're into you know a random theatre suite or we're lucky to have one in our department that we can show them around beforehand to make sure you know they know where they're going to be coming they know who's going to be with them and I think patient experience surveys in brachytherapy are really important because at that time they are focusing on getting through it but three months six months a year later they may have had some other thoughts about actually. bit wasn't very good and i think that needs to be improved on but we're not going to know that unless we ask them so we've implemented an annual patient satisfaction survey that we do for our prostate and our our gynae patients and that goes out every year and then it is looked at what the theme is so the last one for the prostates the theme was overall positive which was really nice to hear but they felt there wasn't enough long-term information so information what's going to happen in six months in regards to side effects and follow-up. So that's allowed us to tailor our information to improve that. So next year, our focus of our patient satisfaction surveys will be around the patient information. So we can see that we have improved it and if it's worked. And the same goes for our our, our gynae service. Again, the feedback was was positive for what can be a traumatic experience. And a lot of the comments were nice to see a familiar face. Um, my colleague, they would mention her, you know, by name, saying it was lovely to see her every week. She explained everything. She was always at the end of the phone. So I think it's little bits. It can't be solved in one go. It's lots of little bits together that I think will take away that that stigma. But it's it's not easy.
2: So Sam, in terms of kind of side effects of brachytherapy what are patients likely to experience obviously very different and um, for gynecological versus prostate cancer patients yeah
3: so for our gynecological patients that are having a, a kind of a general anaesthetic insertion they've already gone through external beam radiotherapy so they're already very sore they may be having issues going for a wee so it might be very painful they may have issues with their bowels, whether they're, they're too loose because they might be having chemotherapy so they're having to take medications to you know, make sure they're not having any accidents. So they're already in quite a tender place. And then we're going to insert some applicators into an area that's already very sore, inflamed. So there's going to be discomfort. There will be some bleeding. Um, and we manage a lot of that pain whilst they go through treatment with epidurals or, kind of patient controlled analgesia where they can press the button if, if they feel uncomfortable. But those side effects aren't going to go away. The brachytherapy is going to make all of that worse, but only for a sh- short period of time. I think a lot of the brachytherapy is very well tolerated. It's it's the insertion removal of, of the rods and uh, needles that patients fixate on and are concerned about that that's going to be the worst bit. So, again, it's managing the removal experience for them so that they're not in pain when that's happening. So through the use of things like gas and air or a drug called Penthox, which people may see kind of footballers have on a field, which is the green tube that they have if they're stretched off, that's being used within brachytherapy departments now as well for those removal scenarios for that breakthrough pain. For our prostate brachytherapy chaps, side effects are actually very good. Pain is minimal. No one usually takes anything more than paracetamol or ibuprofen and only for two or three days. The main issue for these chaps is going for a wee because we're sticking some needles in their prostate um, where their water pipe goes through, where they're going to pass urine. It gets very swollen. Uh, There's lots of blood clots. So they may be passing some some clots in their urine, maybe heavily blood-stained, or they might not be able to pass urine at all. So that's, that's the key thing that we prep those chaps on, that if you get into a situation where you can't, co- can't go for a wee, you must come back into hospital. Um, we do everything we can to try and minimise that, but it's a really kind of a sticking point for some chaps that they really don't want a catheter inserted, which is understandable. Uh, but usually the catheters are only temporary. Uh, and sometimes we leave them in after the procedure to allow the patients a better chance to recover before we take them out to pass some of those those blood clots that may that may be there. But overall, I'd say the prostate brachytherapy is really well tolerated. And I think a lot of chaps may be put off by the invasive nature of the procedure. But it, with a bit of reading, a bit of kind of good counselling, either from uh, an oncologist, a radiographer, um, a clinical nurse specialist, I think chaps should really kind of do their reading and research. Um, I was lucky enough to be a Prostate Cancer UK clinical champion about developing kind of better care for, for prostate patients. And I looked at a slightly different project, but along the brachytherapy pathway. Um, but it's getting that word word out there, I think is key. Our oncologist has produced a video. So when patients click on information on our, on our trust website, her video is the first one that comes up So we get a lot of chapters asking because they've seen the video, they go, oh, I didn't know about that. What's that? Um, And we do get a lot of referrals from a a hospital in North Norfolk. Um, And again, apparently that video is on their first page when you click. And it shows that it's made that difference of patients asking for it rather than being counselled or maybe the oncologist not quite being focused. If they don't do brachytherapy themselves, that they can make that referral. Um, so I think definitely patients doing their reading before and asking the right questions is, is, is vital.
2: It's hard, isn't it, Sam, from a health inequalities perspective. I'm just thinking if you have patients who have to advocate for specific treatments, sometimes you will get patients who get brachiotherapy because they've fought to get that treatment intervention versus someone else who maybe is illiterate or doesn't have access to the internet and doesn't have that exposure. How do you think we can deal with health inequalities when it comes to brachytherapy, but general radiation accessibility?
3: So brachytherapy, I think we've tried to do a big bit of education about it. So not just educating the oncologists who I'm sure are all aware of it anyway, Mm. um, but also the clinical nurse specialists that may sit in with the consultants at these new patient appointments it's using your mdt or your multidisciplinary team working where they review cases having the brachytherapy team at those meetings to go have you thought that patient's eligible for that should should we offer it um so it's making that awareness between health professionals things like our patient videos really 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 help because it's a a succinct piece of information that the patient patient can listen to in their own time they don't feel any pressure so they have to sit there and watch it in front of someone or kind of make a rushed, dis- rushed decision. Um, but it, you're right, it's difficult. Not every hospital, every radiotherapy department does brachytherapy. So what we have is our, our regional network in the east of England and it's making sure all of our protocols are all matching and adaptive so that if someone gets seen in Cambridge for example but they don't offer high-dose-rate therapy, they only offer low-dose-rate that they could be referred to us. Same if someone was seen in Ipswich or Colchester, they are currently referred to South End Hospital, but if they're closer to us, there's no reason they couldn't be referred because we, we should all be working from the same hymn sheet, the same protocols. Um, so I think that that is one way to kind of improve it a little bit, but it, it's a huge undertaking. Um, it's people going on courses like, the, piece, the Prostate Cancer UK Clinical Champions and developing things like you know these podcasts, getting it out there, developing easy access information for patients. Um, we do find some of our, our prostate patients are maybe of a slightly older generation, so actually maybe videos and online things don't work for them. But coming in and having a face-to-face appointment and talking it through is really beneficial, which we lacked in the pandemic period because everything was phone calls or virtual, which for some of our patients doesn't work. If they're not health literate as well, it's it's an added added complication. Um, so it is difficult, but I think it's very important having someone in there with the consultant, another health practitioner, whether that be a site specialist, a CNS nurse, just to provide those extra prompts of to the doctor as well. Have you thought about this? Could they do this? But also to speak to the patient afterwards and be like, have, have he, did you forget to ask anything? I can go back and ask them now. Because often you'll leave the clinic appointment, the patient will ring the day going, as soon as they got to the car, I forgot like the really basic question. So I think having those little chats afterwards, I think again is a, a really important thing to do.
1: Why would some patients not be offered brachytherapy?
3: For prostate patients, a lot of it is based on fitness for a general anaesthetic. You know, as we get older, we develop a lot more morbidities, other health issues which may preclude you from having an anaesthetic in a, in a safe manner. Some prostate chaps aren't able to do it due to previous issues with their prostate cancer. So, if they've had um, bad symptoms beforehand that would be exacerbated by the brachytherapy, especially about going for a wee, sometimes they're deemed that the, the side effects aren't going to be in, in their best interest differentiating between low dose rate brachytherapy and high dose rate brachytherapy is very much dependent on diagnosis for the patients. So kind of the low uh, intermediate risk patients may be offered low dose rate brachytherapy or external beam radiotherapy, but they may be not kind of in that criteria that's worth doing the brachytherapy and going through that all-invasive treatment when you're going to get an equally good response from just having external beam radiotherapy. Our gynecological patients, it's a very difficult one because that is the gold standard for some some cervix patients. That you know, radiotherapy, chemotherapy followed by brachytherapy is that gold standard recommended treatment. So we will do everything that we can to ensure that they can have the brachytherapy. Um, but you know, things things do happen that patients decide they don't want it. Um, maybe because of you know fears of hospitals, of you know worried about how they're going to cope lying on their back for two to four days, not being able to move. Um, sometimes brachytherapy can't go ahead. We have a failed insertion, so thing, things don't work out. We get to the theatre point, we try to insert the applicators and it doesn't work. So then those patients would then be offered more radiotherapy afterwards. That wouldn't be the end of the line. We offer radiotherapy, which, you know, is plan B. Still provides a very good response, but what we really want to try and do is get that very high dose inside the patient rather than going more outside in we really want to boost boost where that tumor is um, but also like we've just spoken about health inequality patients may not may not be recommended for it because there's nowhere near the travel distances are too big consultants aren't aware how to refer or who to refer to um, so it's very multifactorial about why you might might not be offered it or why you might be
1: it's interesting you say about the timings so the department of health i use the stat all the time says it should be 45 minutes one way to radiotherapy but i've had patients minimum two hours one way and that's standard across the uk it's not you know and again patients don't know that if i get diagnosed in london i can request to have treatment up north if i wanted to and that's fine but um as you said it's the advocating and getting the you know all that info out there but yeah the the postcode lottery almost it it is sad, I think, with brachytherapy. There's lots of patients who could have had brachy had a cure, not needed external beam or any of the late effects that might come with it. But yeah, they yeah. just not didn't know about it.
3: So it's all about education. It's making sure people are people are aware of it and getting getting it out there. And brachytherapy within radiotherapy, we do have a really radiotherapy is a small knit world anyway. But brachytherapy is even smaller, and kind of everyone knows everyone in every other brachytherapy centre in the UK. So. Between us, I think we're really good at sharing knowledge, sharing information, helping each other out with patients when, when we either we're at capacity or we can't do it. So that's great, but it's how you make that bigger, how you make that bigger on a, a regional, national national scale. Um, but every trust has their own issues with, you know, capacity, taking patients on, things like that. So, again, very multifactorial about, about trying to fix it.
1: Just thinking of the doses, so obviously internal radiotherapy like brachytherapy is a higher concentration of dose to the target volume, like a tumour or whatever, compared to external beam. So, two questions in one, but are the doses very similar and how does that affect kind of late effects in the future?
3: So, the doses that you typically find with brachytherapy are a lot higher per treatment because you can deliver from inside out, you're not having to go through healthy tissue, so it allows you just to give that really high dose. To the treatment area, and with brachytherapy, the the way the dose works is is a very rapid drop off, so the dose doesn't really have a big dose wash like a radiotherapy treatment would. It's very kind of um, very well contained, so the side effects usually are are very well managed, but the doses we give are a lot bigger, so for Prostate radiotherapy, if you were being referred for treatment, you're having 20 treatments, you're most likely to receive a dose of what's called 60 gray, and that's split over those 20 treatments. But for a prostate brachytherapy boost, that one treatment of brachytherapy, you're giving 15 gray. So you're giving a huge amount of dose in that one go. But because you're delivering just inside the prostate and the dose doesn't travel very far outside, patients tolerate it very well. Prostate cancer works responds very well to that high level of dose in kind of that single treatment Um, so the doses sound huge but because of the way it's delivered it's more manageable and more tolerated by the patients in terms of side effects long-term side effects you do see with the prostate brachytherapy chaps there's a higher risk of having what's called a urethral structure so patients uh, being unable to pass urine and that's usually because their urethra or their water pipe from their bladder goes through their prostate, gets obscured, occluded, too thick. So they may end up having to have an extra procedure to widen that channel afterwards. You do sometimes find as well, you get a lot of side effects from the prostate cancer chaps, but mainly based around the hormone therapy because we're treating high to inter- intermediate to high risk disease so they could be on hormones for two to three years and that's still active treatment and that as I said you know affects their whole body so having kind of hot flushes you know four or five times a day having mood swings putting on weight especially around your your tummy and your chest area for chaps developing kind of gynecomastia or what they call like man boobs like is a really traumatic thing for them they may have been fit and healthy all their lives and all of a sudden they've got no testosterone they can't gain any muscle they're losing all their strength they're gaining man boobs they feel like a whole different person so I find there's a lot of kind of holistic management about how to manage that how to deal with how you're feeling afterwards not necessarily the physical side effects but the kind of the aspect of your whole body care I think it's really important and that goes for our gyny ladies as well about you know we are again giving a really high dose and we send a lot of our ladies home with vaginal dilators because we want them to be able to continue their normal lives. We want them to be able to have have a sex life up sex life afterwards if they you know a lot of them are still quite young and it doesn't matter about the age. But again, that's a very invasive thing to talk to someone about when they're having treatment or going through treatment of saying, well, this is what you're going to need to do for a few weeks afterwards to prevent stenosis. And I think again, education around that and not making that a stigma, not being embarrassed about it, um, making it more patient-involved that they can ask questions about it and not feel embarrassed and not think, oh, I shouldn't really be talking about this. I don't want anyone to know that I'm doing this. So, again, that's part of education um, around the brachytherapy treatment follow-up that I think we need to do more on to take away that stigma. So,
2: Sam... We've come to the end. We could ask you so many more questions. Um, Can you give us some top tips for maybe anyone listening? Um, You know, I'm thinking we have quite a diverse audience, so there might be some top tips for patients, might be some top tips for students, or people who may be interested in going into brachytherapy as their specialist interest.
3: Sure. So I think patients, I think I mentioned it a few few times, is being honest with your healthcare professional and being open and asking for what matters to you at that point in time. Um, So we can best prepare you, best prepare the situation and help you manage as you go through. So I think that's really important to be open and honest and ask for that honesty in return from your healthcare professional. Um, I think again, for the invasive procedure part of it is making sure they know who they're gonna see. So, again, the the patient should ask, who am I going to see on that day? Who's doing the procedure? Who am I going to see when I wake up? Because having that bit of reassurance that, you know, oh, I'll see Sam in the recovery room, I think, again, takes a lot of the the trepidation away. Um, I think for staff, I think it's a really... Good area to go and work in. It provides a lot of career progression, development of career skills. So you know, ultrasound, theatre skills, pain management. Um, the the list this could go on, um, so I think it's something that you should definitely look into if you're a student. Ask for placements. Visit another hospital if yours doesn't doesn't and have a placement. We're always happy to have people come and visit us. We love love showing off. Love telling people what we do. But I think it's it's very important when you start to get your, your feet on the ground as a as a therapeutic radiographer, knowing the department and treating before you start to look at the brachytherapy, get yourself settled and established before you start to take on that little bit more in a very different environment. And I think the way that advanced practice and consultant practice is going, which is a whole nother podcast, um, is making sure that when you start, you should map yourself against the four pillars the pillars of practice from the very beginning of your career so you know what you're doing at what point and what you should be working towards because if i i'd have done that years ago this would have been a whole lot less daunting moving into these roles because you kind of you're aware you've got your evidence whereas having to do it from scratch is is a is is a a big big undertaking Um, so i think those are probably my top tips
2: Oh, thank you, Sam. I'm very proud that you're going to go on to do your PhD. <laughs> Just as a side note, what are you going to do it in? Have you already thought about what your focus will be?
3: Uh, not as yet. So my master's dissertation, I think I'm either going to focus on focal boosting for prostate cancer um, or the use of uh, prostate rectal spacing within radiotherapy, um, as that's something that i Help bring to the Norfolk and Norwich, and quite that's what I did my prostate cancer UK program about. So I'm quite keen about that, and I've got a lot of data which I'd like to publish. Um, but PhD wise, it's difficult not to choose patient experience because it's such a key part of it. Um, but from I'd like to do it from a prostate size because I think there's a lot of a lot of work on the gynaecological side, and there's a huge amount of work for prostate cancer, but specifically brachytherapy. I'd love to do something about, you know, how patients find it, how can we improve it, what's the stigma around it. Um, so I think that would probably be something I'd be interested in doing.
2: Amazing. We'll watch this space and, you know, we'll get you on partway through once you've published some data. Um, I've probably
3: lost a lot more hair by
2: now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for listening to Rad Chat. Uh, your hosts today have been Num and Anderson and Jane Mcnamara amazing guest sam worcester if you're utilizing this podcast for cpd purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited cpd certificate please complete the google form linked with the podcast so our next guest to feature will be helen Estelle who will be discussing her role as a consultant diagnostic radiographer in mri thank you all for listening and take care